0: Bible Geek here, Robert M. Price. I haven't been with you for about a week or so, despite my promise to try to do a couple of Bible Geeks a week. I had a big editing job suddenly dropped into my lap with a deadline and just had to devote loads of time to that, uh, and I was glad I did. But uh, I missed all of you, and uh want to uh, mend the fences here. Uh, one thing before we get into Bible questions, there's a bit of Bible in the news for you. Uh, I don't know if you've seen these ads for bedtime stories from the Bible. Just turn on uh, the uh, the the tape or whatever, and uh, you've got stories from the Gospels and Exodus and all that to go to sleep by. Uh, it's like fairy tales of the little kid, uh, it's uh, like uh, Never Neverland, it's just amazing to me the obliviousness of uh, the many fans of the Bible who uh, don't really seem to be fans of the Bible in, in my book, uh, you'd, you'd sort of expect better from them, but what the heck, uh, they're uh, good for a laugh, aren't they? All right, uh, getting into some actual Bible questions. Here's one from Julian Jansen, a real interesting one. I was reading Galatians and decided to take a look at the interlinear version presented on Bible Hub, and was, uh, you know, if if you had one about Bible controversies, uh, you could call it uh, Bible Hubbub. Anyway, uh, I was interested to notice that there are a few different variants of the Greek for Jerusalem, two of which I saw... As favored by Paul, and I was wondering if there is a distinction in grammar between how one might use them. Uh, in particular, I noticed that um, hierosolima was used in Galatians 1 17 through 18 and 20, I'm sorry, 2 verse 1, while in other places Paul seemed to favor hierosolem. In particular, Galatians 4, 25 through 26, Romans 15, 19, and uh, verses 25 and 26, and 1 Corinthians 16, 3. If there is not a grammatical difference between how they are used, and I don't know that there is. uh, Let's see. I was wondering what might explain the difference in usage. It seems odd to me in particular that there should be a difference in usage within Galatians itself. It seems that the explanation, uh, it seemed that uh, if the explanation were in the use of a different scribe, uh, that would be less likely in one of the somewhat shorter epistles. You know, one wouldn't have gotten that tired after a couple of chapters and had to hand it off to another one. Uh, Yeah, Uh, and it seems odd even if one of the early editors of Galatians would not use a single version. As an admittedly ignorant layman, my first expectation is that there's a grammatical difference that that can account for the different usage of one versus another, but the way the usages are grouped together makes me think otherwise. I hope you could briefly... Uh, clear up any confusion I may have here. If I'm making a valid point, that would be good to know as well. Well, Julian, um, I don't know if I can briefly clear up anything, but uh, this time maybe I can. I tend to think this is because uh, the first two chapters of Galatians uh, are uh, not by the same author as uh, chapters three, four, five, and six. I think that... uh, that the last four chapters um, were written by Marcion himself and uh, that the first two are later Marcionite additions to try to refute the um, Acts account of Paul and his relation to the Jerusalem pillars and so forth. So I think just different authors. And uh, von Manen points out something similar in uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11, when he talks about Israel suddenly. Throughout the rest of the epistle, uh, the uh, we hear of the Jews again and again and again, but suddenly it's Israel in these chapters. And Marcion's uh, text didn't have those chapters. And uh, I think this is another one of these things, where these little clues that you're dealing with multiple authorship. Thanks, Julian. Good thinking jack ferwerda from the death valley of saskatchewan he said it on me um, and i was thinking about the fact that the babylonian talmud in the text of solomon <coughs> referenced the fact <coughs> excuse me that solomon used demonic forces to build his temple not only this, but the fact that the symbol on the mythical ring that Solomon wore to command the demons was the star symbol that is usually seen as the star of David. In fact, this is uh, it, uh, see here. in fact, this is a fact that is not really in dispute. Uh, of course, this is interesting. Uh, in a As a classic rock fan, I can't help but also think and link these thoughts to the craziest of all magic demon trappers, Aleister Crowley, and I know you have some idea about what he was about. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what inspiration this kind of phony magic guy got from these sorts of books. And even if you wish, we can talk about the eventual evolution into Scientology. Uh, Well, uh, Jack, as I understand it, well, of course, the the ring of Solomon and so forth uh, doesn't occur in the Old Testament, uh, but that's not really your question. uh, what is the, what do we know about the uh, derivation of the magic rituals of Aleister Crowley and uh, their supposed ancient origins? Well, he and also the uh, Golden Dawn people, and and Crowley used to be a member before he quit and started his own thing. Uh, They uh, all used these uh, famous magical grimoires dating from the Middle Ages uh, that had all kinds of diagrams and instructions and so forth. Now, what did they use them for? Well, they were uh, religious rituals, it seems to me. My general impression is that uh, they were using this stuff as a kind of uh, syncretistic method of enlightenment. They combined the Kabbalah and the Tarot and... uh, uh, also, ancient Egyptian stuff and so forth, and uh, their point was to try to come up with a means of enlightenment, and these were rituals that supposedly would foster and facilitate that. Uh, and in that regard, I don't think they were phony. Now, Crowley is a very dubious character, morally, and uh, probably touched a bit by insanity, I would guess. Though that's not necessarily a strike against him. <clears throat> But uh, I don't think they, uh, you know, did the kind of stuff we think of in popular culture with uh, with uh, magicians and all that. But um, there was it was ritual magic uh, used for uh, self improvement and enlightenment, <clears throat> whereas the way Solomon. Uh, controls the demons It's just uh, (laughs) uses Asmodeus as a kind of a one-man construction crew. And uh, that's just like, uh, you know, uh, the Arabian Nights and that kind of uh, hilarious and terrific um, comedic legendary. But that's all I know about it. But I think that is the basis of it. Scientology, I I think I'd be surprised if that had any ancient... Uh, any ancient roots. Uh that's the creation of L. Ron Hubbard, who was a big science fiction writer, and came up with a kind of a um scientific or pseudo-scientific method for clearing your your mind of uh these n-grams that kind of like Colin Wilson's mind parasites. And uh, I don't really, unless there's a whole lot more to it than I know, I don't think it really has any kind of, uh, properly speaking, occult lineage or uh, even influence. I think it's mainly pseudoscience and science fiction. He, uh, this is from our good pal Dr. Barton he says listening to you discuss the Mathean nativity and the Magoi or Magi in the Bible Geek show I had a thought about your Magoi equal Parsis theory as it might connect to your Pharisees equals modified Parsis theory by the way uh, that isn't my original theory I do believe it but that was I believe uh it was, I think it was William Manson who says that in a book about the, the public ministry of Jesus. Really fascinating little book. Uh, okay, when I looked into it, I discovered something interesting. Now, regional differences considered, the term magus did not have good implications within the main portions of the Roman Empire, including its Greek domains. In fact, it carried almost exactly the same connotations and legal definition as kashaf, witch, uh, yedoni, wizard, or dara al-ha-mot, necromancer, inquirer of the dead, uh, mentioned in Exodus 22.18 and Deuteronomy 18.11. There were harsh, even death penalties against those found to be magoi, magic users. Even if Matthew used magoy instead of uh, with a with a capital M instead of magoy with a small m as a specific government role instead of common practitioners, then why would he have used such a kind of laden word. Perhaps in the environment in which Matthew was writing, it was not a problem. Unfortunately, I can't think of any discussions at this point by early church fathers. I'll have to do a little more investigating. It does occur to me, however, that perhaps your conjecture that Pharisees derived from Parsis might clarify this point. Matthew was, as I remember, trying to draw Christianity away from Judaism. If this account was based on an earlier, more Jewish account, then is it possible that the original version of the story used the term Parsis instead of Magoi? Might Matthew have replaced Parsis with the less for his area dangerous term Magoi? <clears throat> Stepping back into the theoretical Ur story, you know, the primitive version of it, it wouldn't have made much sense to use the term Pharisees as they were a local group and one presumably opposed to the Jewish Christians of the time. However, if the group telling the story saw the Pharisees as a corruption of the Babylonian Pharisees or Parsis, then the story makes a little more sense. It wasn't priest kings of a foreign religion searching out the Christ child. It was the uncorrupted Jewish priests from Babylon, and there were such Jewish communities with their superior understanding of god's will coming to visit him i propose that matthew took the original jewish parsi version of the story and changed it to magoi In doing so, he used a theologically dangerous term, but it must have had a specific, well-regarded meaning in his context. Thus, he changed the story from uncorrupted Jewish recognition of the Messiah to foreign and non-Jewish-slash-Christian priest-king recognition of the superiority of Christianity and the Christ-king of the world. I would be interested to hear from other junior Bible geeks if they know of any early debates on the defense of Magoi in this story. Well, I, I uh, sort of side with Raymond Brown on this, that uh, the Magoi, who, who by the way are not said to be kings, though that would make even more sense, of what Brown thinks are the sources of this that what Matthew has done is to adapt a widely cited story I mean in in contemporary sources of a visit of um, I think three of the uh, Anatolian kings who were like client kings of um, King Mithridates of the Parthian Empire and they were um, trying to suck up to Rome, and they showed up at the birth of Nero uh, to honor him and um, and to worship him. They they one of them bowed down and said, "I worship you as I do my god Mithras." And then it says, when they were done, they went back to their country by another way. The same thing Matthew says about the Magi or Magoi. Uh, and and it seems to me if this is the case, the the magi business is um, local color uh, to uh, make it sound correct that these guys were Parthians and in particular astrologers. That's clearly implied in the fact that they got their information from the constellations and knew that a new king of the Jews had been born since they assigned uh, different. Uh, uh, constellations to different nations. So I, I think it's a bit less complex than that. And uh, were they um, dubious characters in the eyes of Jews? Well, yeah, but keep in mind, Matthew begins with this and ends with the Great Commission to preach the gospel to all nations. So that kind of fits uh to borrow the phrasing of Hosea and uh, 1 Peter, it's like God is saying to those who were called, not my people. He's now saying, you are my people. Okay, Jim from California asketh. it seems to me that Luke presents James as humiliating Paul. Uh, That is in the book of Acts, of course. One, ignoring the collection he spent years working on. And Acts, I guess it's 21, verse 17, Um, like it was supposed to be relief funds for the the poor, the the early church. But uh, instead, he has another scheme on how to spend the money. Okay, Two, James shows how unimpressed he is with Paul's collection by boasting his ministry is more successful than Paul's in verse 20. You see, brother, how many Jews have believed in, all of them zealots for the law. Now, they've been told that you tell Jews living in the diaspora not to circumcise their children. Well, how are we going to get them uh, calmed down? Uh, and um, and this, this is implying, like, uh, I've got more followers here than you do among those Gentiles. So, you know, who's, who's the big man? It's me. Um, could be. I never thought of it that way um yeah he then order for he then orders him to perform a highly public and visible ceremony that James probably knew would end in disaster for Paul in verse 24 now what is that you know um James says to uh, to Paul why don't you show them that these allegations are not true, and that you're a good law observant Jew, and here's the way to do it: you got this money, why don't you use it to pay for these sacrifices to be offered by some among us who have who who are just completing a Nazarene vow, uh, and uh, that'll show them that uh, you know all that stuff about you being a libertine is a lot of bunk. It kind of leaves open, of course, as to whether it was or not, right? But this will at least make everybody think that you're a good Torah Jew. uh, Five. James then claims authority over Paul's churches by reminding him they have been instructed by the Jerusalem church to live in obedience to Noahide law in verse 25 now as for the Gentiles you remember back in chapter 15 we promulgated that decree telling them well really all you've got to do is to abstain from idols and uh, improperly slaughtered uh, beef and uh, uh, and and uh, pornea, whatever that means, probably uh, marriage to cousins and the like, which some countries allowed, some didn't. Cultures, that is, and, and so on. As if that James could tell them what to do and they would do it, right? Okay. Um, uh, so it appears that the leader of the early Jerusalem Church completely disrespect Paul respects Paul's entire evangelistic effort yet today nearly all Christian theology is based on Paul's epistles what is the geek's thought on why Luke would disrespect Paul if this is not based on historical events or am I completely off base no Jim you're not uh, of course uh, the great F.C. Bauer and I'm looking at the framed picture of him I've got on the uh, that bookcase over there now I hope everyone has one not yet seen any F.C. Bauer t-shirts, but that would be a great gimmick. Anyhow, people would say, hey, who the heck is that guy? Oh, he's the founder of the higher criticism. Let me witness to you about Bauer. Anyhow, Bauer said that, yeah, this kind of thing typifies the the reconciling, catholicizing approach of the Book of Acts. It is writing either to establish a kind of a, a platform of coexistence between Jewish Christianity on the one hand where they did keep the laws faithfully and uh, Pauline law free Christianity on the other and uh, this was a way of saying uh, now who's a real apostle well the twelve were uh, and uh, they actually accompanied Jesus the whole time, etc. Paul did not. He received his commission in a vision. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean Christ isn't working through him, though interestingly, he t- Luke, or the author of Acts anyway, tends to uh, deny Paul the title of Apostle. Uh, he and Barnabas are called apostles in two places in Luke 14, where they're among the the, uh, Lycaonians. In the Western text of Acts, one of those verses does not have the term apostles. The other one does, but it makes me wonder if that was also an alteration, because otherwise it's very surprising, given the huge amount of coverage given to Paul, that he's not called an apostle. And uh, so that's probably because Luke didn't think he was on the... uh, the. uh, Same level with the the twelve apostles. In fact, uh, the idea of a college of the twelve apostles is a Lucan invention. Uh, That terminology only occurs in the book of Acts, and it seems to reflect—okay, I say either it's trying to create— a plat, an ecumenical platform for catholicizing, and or it is assuming such a thing has happened and is writing church history from that standpoint. I guess it's really six or one half a dozen of the other, but that's what's going on. I think, uh, why James, I'm sorry, where Peter and Paul are paralleled down to the weirdest. Uh, uh, miracles and so on in the book of acts it's because it's it's like saying well if you like peter you you gotta like paul if you like paul you you gotta like peter because look god worked through them both in pretty much the same darn way uh hi dr price it's luther again yet again I've got a question inspired by both your occasional comments about earlier scholars being, to put it in pop music terminology, oldies but goodies, and also by my occasionally being burned by what seem like interesting enough pickups at used bookstores, only to find they turn out to be woefully outdated, for example, points made totally invalid by the Dead Sea Scrolls, Nag Hammadi text, or even just what seemed to be general consensus. I'm wondering, could you list a couple of earlier scholars, let's say at least mid-20th century or earlier, whose work you think is essential and really holds up despite any more recent scholarship? And also maybe a couple to avoid because their work doesn't hold up. Well, I think uh, the serious student of the Bible will Read Julius Wellhausen, or Wellhausen, if you prefer, uh, his book, The Prolegomena to the History of Ancient Israel. Uh, that it, it's, uh, it's pretty heavy going, though I don't think it's confusing in any way, but it's, of course, long-involved Germanic sentences, but well-translated, and that will really uh, take the blinders off about the Old Testament in many ways. That has been superseded to some degree by the introduction of form criticism and and uh, uh, later minimalism that uh, reveals the Old Testament books as much later and much less historical. But still, Wellhausen is, is basically about source criticism and the evolution of Israelite religion and uh, its... Uh, it's it's really great. I don't think anybody has really surpassed that. Some people try to carve up the pizza differently, but I don't think it works. I think Wellhouse is as established in biblical studies as uh, Darwin is in uh, in biology. It's like both have been improved upon. But what's happened is that the improvers are building on the the foundation of the work that these great giants produced. Uh, then in the uh, the New Testament, a couple of older books would be David Friedrich Strauss's "The Life of Jesus Critically Examined," probably still the best book ever written on the Gospels, and uh, just just a revelation. This guy had an eagle eye like nobody else. And uh, and of course uh, F. C. Bowers' book on uh, Paul the Apostle of Jesus Christ, incredibly good stuff. And um, I might uh, also recommend W. C. Van Manen, V. A. N. M. A. N. E. N. A collection of his work that I edited uh, is called A Wave of Hyper Criticism, that introduces you to the whole Dutch radical. Uh, uh estimate of the Pauline epistles, so I think uh um, these guys are are just uh just super they they would be must reads and uh, they're still available great great stuff mm, uh, let's see what to avoid well, I think uh. Forgive me for saying this, but anything by an evangelical scholar is basically apologetics, uh, trying to be as traditional as possible and uh, to try in some way to undo the work of of uh, the higher critics. And uh, I also, oh, sorry about this, but I find the work of Richard Horsley. And uh, John Dominic Crossan to be uh, almost wholly implausible and politically motivated. Though I do love uh, Crossan's books, uh, In Fragments, The Aphorisms of Jesus, and uh, his book The Cross That Spoke, uh, an amazing and brilliant book. I'm not trying to make these anybody bad guys, but uh, it's a mixed bag. You might like some of what I say, and you think other things are crazy that I say. That's fine. You know, you you decide. Uh let's see. This is from Austino uh, Inverba. Yes, this is a pseudonym. I haven't quite figured it out but okay it says i request a baptist preacher voice if you feel so inclined something popped into my head today that i haven't thought much of since walking back my formerly christian beliefs what would you say is the best example of bible prophecy i know many are vague or very clearly seem to be written after the fact but if one had to pick what is the most compelling Bible or other holy book prophecy the geek has come across, which shows the least amount of foul play? I've heard, the, I've heard the contortions needed to make the famous prophecy of the fall of Tyre make sense. Of course, upon first hearing the faithful spin, it sounded reasonable, but, but as the proverb says, uh, the first to state his case seems right until the other party comes and cross-examines him. proverb 18.17 I eagerly awake the geek's input as always. Okay, what was uh, an accurate prediction that is not a vaticinium ex eventu, uh, a seeming prophecy but written after the fact uh, well, uh, one would seem to be Isaiah's assurance that God would never allow the Assyrians to capture Jerusalem and its temple. Why well, I think that's authentic? Because it didn't happen and they didn't change the prophecy. Uh, that, that's one of them. Uh, there are. This is a strange example, but uh, it sort of bears on what you're asking. The uh, Synoptic Apocalypse is. Um, prediction that the temple would be destroyed uh, in 70 AD, that is, a, uh, when this Jesus contemporary generation uh, was, was still barely alive. Um, because if you understand this as a kind of veiled prediction of Titus, uh, destroying the temple, well, that happened, all right, but then again, there is the problem of this being written after the fact, in all probability. Uh, the uh, the various New Testament predictions that Christ would soon return, well, they're genuine, but, but uh, failed prophecies, and uh, then there's this whole bunch of them, Old Testament passages that are said to predict Jesus that only seem to do so if you're reinterpreting them in christian terms as if a uh a hidden meaning was embedded by the inspiring holy spirit uh, a prophecy that could only be understood after the fact uh but you know that's not even really a prediction in the way we mean it so i, I don't know if that's really viable but um You know, it was popular among liberal theologians decades ago to say that the biblical prophets are really more like forth tellers than foretellers. When they spoke of the future, they're talking about imminent events of which they were warning. You know, here come the Babylonians, they're on the horizon, maybe it's not too late to repent, because if you don't, they're going to crush you uh yeah that, that's not exactly a prediction. It didn't necessarily take supernatural knowledge to know that um and so it's it's more like a warning and uh that's forth telling not predicting stuff that the current readership couldn't possibly understand and so it's a tough question to frame um and depending on how you do it, there are different answers. Let's see, uh, this is from our pal Luther again. Says, I've got a question for you based on your discussion with Joseph Atwill on the Myth Vision podcast posted on August 12th, your second discussion with Atwill on that show you expressed your changing views on the possibility that romans would have had reason to invent some version of the jesus story slash christianity romans propagating a non-violent religion for their troublesome jewish subjects makes sense to me but my question is historical. Can you think of examples of what seems almost like a state-imposed religion, especially in centuries close to the birth of Christianity? Was this something that was done by the Romans elsewhere or anyone else elsewhere? <laughs> you bet you, sweet Bibby. Um, keep in mind that this wouldn't have been a total imposition, because uh, the rabbis, after the fall of Jerusalem, discouraged any speculation on when the messiah would come because that had created nothing but trouble when people said oh here he is low here low there uh, and they said look it'll happen in its own time stop coming up with these jehovah's witness like um, predictions they're they're only going to embarrass us and cause more trouble well nobody told them to do that they just figured let's let's steer clear of this it's it's been a disaster well that's that's a kind of pacifying form of of jewish zealotry and uh, that's kind of what uh, we're we're envisioning here with a pro-roman pacified version of an originally revolutionary jesus movement uh, and, and the romans uh, uh brandon thought that that was uh well, that Mark's gospel was the spearhead of that move, which arose from Christians themselves seeking to escape the suspicion of Rome and saying, look, I don't know what you may have heard, but we're good citizens. We're not rebelling against Caesar, God forbid, though originally Jesus and his buddies were, the theory goes. Uh, and so you're saying, hey, look, not us. you got nothing to fear from us. Uh, well, yeah, but the uh, the idea of, of of Joe Atwill and uh, uh, Valiant and Fahir is that uh, that Rome did encourage this kind of Christianity. That's not implausible, given the evidence that they bring forth from uh, from numismatic or coin evidence and so forth, that having to do with the fact that the ever-present uh, or the, the, the ubiquitous Christian symbol in the early centuries of, a, of a, an anchor with, uh, with uh, dolphins on either side of it had been for a long time the symbol, the, the, the monogram, the trademark of the Flavian dynasty, and suddenly it appears all over the place as a Christian symbol That's, you know, given our usual picture of early Christianity, that sounds like uh, synagogues uh, having swastikas in their sanctuary, but maybe we haven't been thinking of it right, Uh, and uh, maybe there was government support and sponsorship, and so the Romans didn't seem to be all that bad, and uh, and many uh, Christians must have wanted to uh, forswear any kind of anti-Roman Uh, View. And uh, so I find that highly plausible. Uh, Who knows, though, right? And uh, Valiant and Fahey do not think this is an argument for mythicism. They really don't get into that. Uh, I think it it would fit very well with Brandon's view that there was a historical Jesus who was a revolutionist, but uh, it doesn't settle that question. Yet, as you well know, I'm on record many times saying that uh, I do not hold the mythicist position as a dogma. I, I I find it the most compelling theory, but this it's not the only uh, plausible theory. And the um, the Brandon Valiant at Atwill Fahey model is also uh, quite strong. And uh, so, yeah, Uh, did anybody else have this kind of approach? Well, we do know that in general, Rome, when it conquered people, tried to um, reinterpret their religion and that of the conquered people as different versions of the same thing. Uh, so that uh, believers in uh, Isis and Osiris, Mithras, etc., would not feel they had to choose between their ancestral religion and that of their new uh, lords. Uh, and uh, that seemed to work pretty well. People didn't mind saying, well, you call him Dionysus, we call him Osiris, but yeah, they're so similar. I uh, probably are just different names for the same deity. There were even Jews who thought uh, that uh, Dionysus and Jehovah were the same entity, or Dio- or uh, Zeus and and Jehovah. So this this was a strategy of getting along. But it reflects, um, especially in the Valiant and Fahey uh, at will approach, it reflects a long, long-standing practice of the conquering empires, like the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians, who, uh, who did kind of impose their own religion, but again, syncretistically, uh, so that uh, why don 't you take some elements of ours and and yours, and the whole history of revitalization movements shows how uh conquered peoples e uh, even revolutionists might be interested in that because they figured well i don 't know why, but uh, our God was not willing or even able to uh to defeat the gods of the foreign powers because we lost uh, Could it be that um Our conquerors were on to something, and we ought to try to appeal to these gods, too. Uh, And so it's not at all hard to imagine that. But again, let me say the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Persians would basically impose their religion and uh, say, you know, uh, what we are doing is to restore your religion, which had been corrupted— and that's but in fact it was a new thing uh, claimed an ancient pedigree for it and uh, this is uh, i think what happened with judaism why is judaism post exile so different from the religion of israel before the the exile uh, and it's much more like Z- persian zoroastrianism and i think practically is zoroastrianism just with a jewish accent Ahriman becomes Satan, the Seoshians becomes the Messiah, etc., etc. The resurrection from the dead, and and so on. So, yeah, this is a long-standing policy uh, in one manner or another for many centuries in that area. Okay, Uh, one more from uh, Luther. Uh, I always love this when somebody is doing their own reading program, and it causes them to wonder about this, that, and the other thing. Uh, Let's see. He says, I'm reading S.G.F. Brandon's Fall of Jerusalem and the Christian Church, and while I'm overwhelmingly impressed, as if he needs my approval, uh, uh, and I'm learning plenty, I was struck by one single sentence. It isn't central to anything, but it stuck out to me, and I want to run it past you as a sanity check. Um, the sentence, a dilzy is. In seeking to blame the Jews and consequently exculpate the Romans, Mark could scarcely have invented the part played in the drama by the Jewish leaders, for had he done so, we should be faced with the inevitable conclusion that Jesus was condemned and executed solely on the initiative of the Roman authorities, which conclusion would demand a drastic revision of the view of the origins of Christianity, which has been almost, universally held chapter 5 page 75 the way I read that sentence is as follows one Mark could not have invented Jewish involvement in Jesus trial and crucifixion it must be real in other words Because, two, that would mean Romans alone tried and crucified Jesus, which would mean, three, scholarly and popular consensus as to Christian origins would be found incorrect. So, Brandon seems to be saying we can't accept that historical or literary finding in Mark's work Because the wrong finding would be a problem for academic and popular consensus? This seems entirely backward and, frankly, absurd. Can you tell me whether I'm reading it wrong? Uh, It's very strange. uh, Why does he say that in terms of his larger theory? Um, I don't see why... You couldn't have Mark making up the whole thing in order to shift the blame for the death of Jesus on to Jews. I mean, even if it were true, even if it were false, the idea that the blame is shifted to Rome uh, would uh, fit the theory that in some measure the uh, story has been changed in order to get Christians off the hook. But I don't see why it would have to be fake. I, I'm not sure what the motive there would be, and certainly if Brandon is saying, "Well, this would be unheard of," yes, yeah, so what? So's the rest of your theory. Though I think it's a good theory. Um, I uh, I have to admit I I don't remember why he says that. I I uh, will uh, take a look and get back to you probably next time. But as I understand it, I I don't see... It seems to me to be undermining his own theory. And uh, many scholars today just do flat out say... The Jews had nothing to do with it. Uh, It was Roman period. And uh, that seems kind of plausible... Given the the manner of his execution as crucifixion. Um, But again, I'll get back to you on that. Uh, Luther again... Again, keep them coming, Luther... Uh, this is Luther, pesky as a Minnesota mosquito, with yet another question. The other day I picked up at a used bookstore a massive hunk of a book Martin Luther's Basic Theological Writings, edited by Timothy Lowe. I suppose, as a baptized and confirmed Lutheran from a family of Lutheran pastors, I'm probably several decades delinquent in digging in beyond the small catechism. And it's a little ironic that I didn't get around to it until well after I became an atheist, but such is life. My question is this. Already within the first two writings disputation against scholarly theology, and disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences, a.k.a. the 95 Theses. There have been several references to the guilt and penalty of sin, with footnotes pointing out that Catholic theology of the time differentiated between guilt and penalty of sin. For example, taken from the 95 Theses, these two theses included such footnotes. The penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self, true inner repentance, until our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, okay, I don't quite get that, but uh seems like you're in for it until you really repent. Uh, and being baptized as an infant wouldn't uh, change that. Or another one. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without indulgence letters. Ah, uh, Well, you sure don't need uh, paperwork from the church to repent, if that's what he means. But then, um, uh, is, uh, wait a minute. Uh, Uh, Luther, our Luther, says, however, these footnotes didn't get around to actually defining that differentiation. If I knew nothing of Catholicism, which is sadly close to true... I'd probably say that the guilt is what we've all got as a consequence of both original and our actually committed sins, while the penalty is our consequent damnation therefrom. But knowing we're talking about indulgences, knowing Catholics have confession and penance, etc., muddies the waters. Can you clarify for me what the guilt and penalty of sin would mean to Luther? I have to admit if, if there's a an an other than common denotation of those terms, I don't know it. But I, I think he means you're guilty for it and you're gonna pay for it. But uh if you repent, you're not. But I don't know if that implies a real difference. Um Okay, uh, Luther continues. However, these footnotes... uh, Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, As a brief footnote, I'm amused to see him repeatedly referring to purgatory as a real thing, which was vehemently rejected right along with the indulgences he was criticizing by the time I was being indoctrinated. Luther was practically the fourth member of the Trinity in my upbringing, yet here we are ignoring one of his apparent beliefs. (laughs) That wouldn't be the only one. Um this uh, uh, you know, Luther changed the canon he uh, dumped the uh, so-called apocryphal books and he uh, relegated I think James, Jude, Hebrews and Revelation to an appendix to the New Testament his followers weren't going that far Um, well, I think I'm going to uh, stop here. And, uh, hopefully I will get back to you a little quicker next time, but thanks for being uh, a listener to the Bible geek. Uh, sure. Appreciate it. If you would become a Patreon uh, supporter as well and, uh, get certain perks that, uh, only my patrons get and uh if you haven't read my uh Jesus Christ superstition you oughta what's stuff? and you uh so I would take a look at that and I hope uh my uh holy fable volume 4 will be out pretty soon from the same publisher uh namely pitchstone publications And there's also other good things on the way. But I will uh, leave you now and see you next time on The Bible Geek. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing?